0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's funny how history often pokes its head out in the framework of contemporary events. Remember during the government shutdown a few years ago, commentators said that radical elements of the Republican Party were acting like terrorists from the 60s and 70s. We heard similar criticism of Occupy Wall Street a few years ago. And who can forget the president being accused during his campaign of palling around with terrorists because of a relationship with Bill Ayers? The fact is that the ideas of direct action, grassroots support and commitment to ideas of social change, no matter how flawed, were an essential part of America in the 1970s. Inspired by the communist revolutions in Cuba and China and Vietnam, by the actions of the Nixon administration and the war in Vietnam and the efforts for racial justice, a radical group of revolutionaries sought to launch what they believed to be a second American revolution. Today, to look back upon it is to be shocked by the level of violence that the public came to accept as commonplace, and how the efforts of law enforcement were almost keystone cops-like. Taking us back to this bizarre time in American history is author and journalist Brian Burrow. Brian Burrow is a special correspondent at Vanity Fair, the author of five previous books, including The Big Rich, Public Enemies, and the classic Barbarians at the Gate. He's a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and it is my pleasure to welcome Brian Burrow back to this program to talk about his newest work, Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff,
1: my pleasure. I only wish I could be there in in person, you are uh, you are a lucky man to get to live in Napa.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's good to talk to you again. Talk a little bit about the context of this. One of the things that is so remarkable in trying to understand this period of violence and, and what went on in the 70s is realizing that it was only 45 years ago. This was during the Nixon administration and yet we have changed so dramatically. Our attitudes have changed so dramatically in a relatively short period of time.
1: It, it is kind of amazing. Um, there's so many things that have changed. I mean, for one thing, when these kids, as I'll sometimes call them, because most of them when they're in their 20s, when these kids started going underground and starting these bombing campaigns in 1970, the newspapers always called them revolutionaries. By the time the last ones were getting rounded up and captured in the early 80s, the headlines called them terrorists. So you, get a, you get a sense of... Uh, the, the, the changing way that they were, that they were viewed. Um, but the biggest thing that's, that's different is that 9-11 forever changed the way we think about political violence. To us, now when you say there was a bombing and there were more than 3,000 during the first five years of the 1970s, uh, when you say there's a bombing uh, people believe, you know, you, you immediately think that, that this is terrorists trying to kill people. In the 1970s, the nature of the bombings were fundamentally different. Of all these thousands of bombings, probably less than 1% killed or even wounded anyone. They were mostly what I call protest bombings. That is, bombs set up, uh, set off outside a police station or a courthouse. Uh, they go to the morning, no one's hurt. The next day, a communique, denouncing the war, or some aspect of the political condition is issued. Now, that's not to say there weren't bombs that went off that... Killed people in the 70s. There were, there were several that were um, that took several lives. Um, but the nature the nature of uh, of what a bomb was was different in the 70s. It basically it, it, it basically you ought to view it as like an exploding press release.
0: Part of it was that there was also an acceptance of it after a while. It became woven into the fabric of, of American life. You tell the story that is probably the penultimate example of this that took place in a movie theater when a bomb went off.
1: Oh, I love that one. There, are two, there were two um, incidents I always kick off to, to, to show kind of how accepted all this was. One was after the FALN, which was a Puerto Rican uh, independence group, put a, a bomb off. Uh, set a bomb off inside Mobile Oil Headquarters in 1977, killing one, people and sever- sever- killing one person and, ki- and severely injuring several others. The New York Post was interviewing bystanders outside me, and they asked one woman what she thought, and, and her reaction was priceless. She said, quote, Oh, another bombing? Who is it this time? Can you imagine that type of, uh, of attitude today? And then there's the example that you mentioned, Um, in which another actually Puerto Rican group, a separate Puerto Rican group, set off bombs inside two theaters in the Bronx in New York in May of 1970. Several people were were injured, but it was considered such not a big deal that when the police came in to clear the theater, to start the investigation and everything, the the, the theatergoers almost literally had a riot because they insisted on watching the end of the movie. (laughs) <laughs> and then neither the reaction or the bombing was considered that big a deal it was a story that was all of i think six paragraphs in the new york times the next day that was the level of kind of public acceptance there there were so many bombings and they came so regularly especially in new york especially in the bay area that it was just eh, another bombing
0: one of the other things is that this wasn't just limited to the U.S., that a similar kind of thing was going on in Northern Ireland and in England with respect to the troubles there, and, and bombings there were becoming acceptable.
1: They were, and one thing to one thing to understand is is to is to properly place the nature of revolu- revolutionary violence in American in seventies in a global context, mm-hmm. because uh, compared to groups like the IRA, the Red Brigades, Bottom meinhof the PLO. The American revolutionaries, or terrorists, if you want to call them that, they were double-A ball. Europe and the Middle East was the major major league. That was where you had prime ministers being kidnapped and CEOs being kidnapped. And, you know, it it was a a much more murderous uh, level of violence. The fact is, for all the political violence we've had in America over the last 200-plus years, we just don't have the track record of, of embracing it as a tactic that you've seen in the Middle East and Western countries where that type of violence you know, uh, breaks out periodically, That still, political violence is still unusual in America.
0: One of the other aspects of this is the mythology that went along with it that was put forth, I guess, mostly by the Weather Underground that they never intended to hurt anybody. Talk about that.
1: Well, I think looking back on the book and, and, and the reviews, I think that probably the, the, the most significant um, point that the book makes the most significant myth that it, that it, that it, 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 casts aside is this idea propagated by Bill Ayers and some of the other weatherman alumni that weather never did anything but, but these protest bombings that they never intended to hurt a soul and they never did. That's just not true. That's what, Weatherman ultimately became after its first 90 days, and the first 90-day period is the period that very few Weathermen have ever wanted to talk about because it's the period where, very bluntly, Weatherman set out to kill people, and the people that they agreed at the, early on that were going to be legitimate targets for violence were policemen and military officers, and by by assassinating or trying to kill policemen, they were attempting to kind of build an alliance. With African Americans, especially the Black Panthers, who were, you know, marching through the streets yelling "Off the pig," so that's what Weatherman decided they would do. Weatherman's first uh, bombing, as a matter of fact, uh, had never, never before disclosed until this book was February 22nd, I want to say, 1970, uh, in which they put two pipe bombs in the parking lot at the Berkeley, uh, California Police Department, and a shift change. The idea being that there would be more policemen in the parking lot that could be killed. Luckily for the policemen, one of the bombs went under a car. The other one went beside two cars. There were no serious injuries, although one, uh, well, I guess one was serious. One patrolman nearly lost his arm. For some reason, Weatherman never took credit for that bombing, and I only learned about it from two of the people who were there that night. The second bombing, which was actually done by Bill Ayers, attempted bombing by Bill Ayers a month later in Detroit, two pipe bombs were set outside of police, benevolence association meeting. Those bombs did not go off. And then everything changed at the third bombing. The third bombing was to be uh, carried out by the New York cell of Leatherman. They were building pipe bombs on uh, the morning of March 6, 1970, inside one of their family members' uh, townhouse on 11th Street in Greenwich Village in New York City. And uh, the bombs were intended to be set outside an officer's dance at Fort Dix, New Jersey that night, where there would have been a hundred or more uh, army officers and their wives and girlfriends. Um, unfortunately for the weathermen, and fortunately for the people at Fort Dix, uh, as the leader of the cell, a young man named Terry Robbins was building bombs, um, it, they went off and uh, killed Terry and two others, and brought the, the townhouse literally down on, onto their heads And it's funny we, you know, if 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 that had not happened, we would not be having this debate. We would be looking back on the Weather Underground as revolutionary mass murderers because that is very much what they intended to be. It was only after that happened. It was such a traumatic moment for Weather. Three of their core uh, people were killed that the group basically all but fell apart and had to be reconstituted a couple of months later. And when that happened. A young woman named Bernadine Dorn, who is still alive, teaches at Northwestern, brilliant, young radical, kind of took control of the group and said, we must disavow murderous violence. We must, uh, there is not public support for that. It's counterproductive to everything that we stand for. If we're going to keep doing this, we need to do, you know, approach uh, what What one underground newspaper called responsible terrorism, that is, Protest bombings that would not kill people, and that's what Leatherman became for the next five or six years. But that's not what they started out to be at all.
0: Did it make any difference in their efforts, in their cause, in their effectiveness once they made that decision? Once Bernadine Dorn made that decision?
1: No, um, and that's that's what. There is a narrative here uh, in days of rage that is sharply different from previous. Uh, narratives uh, about the weather underground, which basically present weather as this kind of incredibly productive um, uh, and successful group uh, that was out there spreading the good word um, uh, You know, of a hundred or more radicals uh, underground throughout the 1970s. And it turns out that, in fact, weather was relevant for that first year. Uh, and after 1971, they began to fall apart. Uh, As the the the, the blood kind of uh, ebbed out of the uh, the energy ebbed out of the anti-war movement, Uh, Weather lost more and more members. Uh, In fact, contrary to the myth, there were not several hundred of them out underground. Uh, Having talked to several members of the leadership, I think I can confidently say that, that the vast majority of Weather Underground bombings were carried out by the same 12 people, and all the bombs were built by one guy. Uh, a young man named Ron Flegelman, who came forward and identified himself and talked for the first time in this book. Um, so there's a lot of myths about weather. Uh, but the greatest myth is that they achieved anything. Uh, as one of them said, we declare war in America, and guess what? We lost. Uh, that's not to say that they don't have, uh, that individual members don't have some admirable qualities. Uh, certainly, I think, when you talk to young radicals today, uh, young activists today, whether they're in Black Lives Matter, whether they're in Occupy, uh, many of them look to Bill Ayers and people from the Weather Underground and some of these other groups. And while they may not embrace the political violence of these groups carried out, they are uh, they stand in admiration of their commitment um, and their focus and their their dedication. Um, so I, you could say that the Weather Underground achieved absolutely nothing. Nevertheless, it's alumni, um, you know, are, are kind of remain symbols, important symbols on the American left today.
0: One of the other myths seems to be that this was all about, and much of this violence was about Vietnam. And in fact, in in deconstructing it as you do in Days of Rage, we see that really, the fight for black justice was much more at the core of this whole movement.
1: It really was. It was. A, it was as one of the Weather Underground leaders, to me said to me, we were, we were thrilled to bring in new members and recruits who were anti-war, but we were never primarily about the war. The hardcore of, of weather all came out of the Civil Rights Movement. There, when they looked to a leader, a uh, symbolic leader, it was, not, it was not Martin Luther King. It was Malcolm X. And for really, if you look at all the groups, the one thing, that, 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 well, they had two things in common. Uh, they were hardcore Marxist-Leninists, and their primary focus almost always was um, African American rights and police brutality um, and you know black poverty. Um, and some of that gets lost because people always think that this was about the war, and the war was a big part of it. The war gave enormous energy to the movement and also to the radical uh, to the underground component of it. But you're right, that was always one of the myths, that this was always just about the war, and it was about far more than just the war.
0: And the irony is that, that while the world has changed so dramatically, as we talked about at the outset, that those fundamental issues that were at the core of this are still very much and very prominent as issues today.
1: Yeah, I, I get asked a lot about this, as a matter of fact, Jeff, and, and it is very interesting because he he. It, it, it's like reading the same stories over again. When you go read those articles from Ferguson, from Baltimore, um, from, all the, from all the dots along the Black Lives Matter trail, they're the exact same issues that activists um, and politicians were dealing with in the early 1970s, at which point, you know, many of the groups in the 70s got violent. The Panthers, the Black Liberation Army. Today, notably, there has been... Very little violence. And, you know, I'd like to believe that that young activists today know their history. They know what came from political violence in the 1970s. Not only did it not achieve their aims, it was counterproductive to their aims. Today, I think it's much easier to communicate um, what you want. If you're an activist, you have the Internet. Back then... You, you you didn't you had to beg some newspaper to, to publish something. Uh, uh, it, it was just much more difficult to get your message out. Um, and so it, I, I, I mean I had to smile sometimes when you may remember the, riot, the one one night of violence in Baltimore. I guess it was sure. last summer, and people were trying to draw comparisons to to the '70s or the '60s with you know riots in Newark or at Watts. And, and and the violence we've seen today is inconsequential compared to what America went through in the late 60s and 70s.
0: To what extent, even within the context of talking about race, to what extent was there an influence that came from the other revolutionary movements that were going on around the world in China and Cuba um, and and various other places?
1: Well, there were influences, um, large and small. Uh, The large influence was clearly the symbol and the inspiration of uh, Third World Revolutions gave to these would-be American revolutions, r- revolutionaries. I mean, they deeply studied and idolized Fidel and Che, the two Tupamoros and Uruguay. Um, all these groups were uh, their heroes, if you will. Um, there have been, periodically, uh, those on the right who would want you to believe that the Cuban government was deeply involved with the Weather Underground uh, and with some of these other groups. I think that my my investigations, if you will, my research suggests that that involvement was there, but that it was largely nominal. We know that the top leadership of the Weather Underground went down to Cuba uh, at the be- at the very beginning of its organization, met with senior leaders there, met with North Vietnamese leaders there. Who basically said, you know, uh, something along the line of, go get them, good luck. But it wasn't like Fidel Castro was shipping these people bombs and guns. Um, We know that uh, members of Weather and at least one of the group met periodically with Cuban diplomats at the United Nations and visited a Cuban embassy in Toronto. I don't think that really rises to the level of, um, you know, coordination. Now, there was... Uh, late, a, a later group, uh, the FALN, the Puerto Rican group that came out of Chicago and bombed regularly in Chicago and New York from 74 to 81, I th- I think that there's much more evidence that they had a deeper involvement with Cuban intelligence, uh, because Cuban intelligence has always been active in fomenting trouble on the island of Puerto Rico. So I think there's there's much more evidence for foreign involvement there. But overall, by and large, I'd say that that, that these were homegrown groups that grew inspiration from abroad, if not material support.
0: The other side of this story that you point out is how pathetic, and I don't know another word for it, law enforcement was in their response. I mean, in many ways, even the FBI was like the Keystone Cops.
1: They really were, and, and they'll be the first to tell you that, that that. They were the FBI, especially, was just singularly unprepared to infiltrate these groups. Um, you know, they, they were able to infiltrate some of the '60s groups. You know, it's easy to, to have to grow your hair long and hang out at a demonstration, but actually going underground, living in a safe house or, for for uh, you know a, a period of time. As far as I know, there was exactly one informant that ever infiltrated any of these groups and he lasted about four months at the very beginning of the weather on the ground before he was, he, was, uh, uh, he was arrested because Hoover needed a couple of arrests um, but it, it's just amazing if you go back and you read the FBI memos about why they couldn't infiltrate these groups or find them they, you know they could the, the agents continually complain about about how dirty and long-haired and drudgy these kids are and how none of their friends will talk to us. Uh, you know, they just were speaking two different languages. Um, and as a result, of course, famously, um, the FBI crossed the line into illegal activity in its efforts to bring in uh, weather, resorting to illegal break-ins, illegal uh, wiretapping, uh, opening mail, all, all that. Um, and then if you look at the other groups, you know, other than the FLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, where the FBI was successful in tracking down Patty Hearst, that's pretty much the only investigative uh, triumph the feds can can claim against any of these groups. Most of them um, fell apart, uh, either taken down, as with the Black Liberation Army, by local police, or as, as with Matulu Shakur's group, Uh, called The Family, you know, they kind of imploded after a day of, uh, when an armed robbery uh, went went awry and they ended up uh, all getting captured after shooting three cops. You know, most of these groups fell apart due to happenstance.
0: How willing were all of these leaders to talk to you about this and, and, and the perspective and the opportunity to talk about it after 45 years and talk about what most of them or how most of them have changed or what they're doing today.
1: You know, I, I got a lot I got a lot of people to talk, but for every person that would talk with me, Jeff, probably there were two or three that wouldn't. Um, so while I'm, I'm, I'm happy that there is a good deal of new information here, I'm frustrated because I see all the people that wouldn't talk to me. Bill Ayers would never talk to me. Uh, Bernadine Dorn wouldn't talk to me. Uh, that said, an awful lot of people who had not spoken before agreed to. I think, you know, many of them are at, were at a uh, stage of life now in their 60s and 70s uh, where they're concerned with the legacy, with their personal legacy, where the statute of limitations and some of these crimes have run out. Um, uh, most of these people, I would say they're, in terms of attitudes, they tell us the three categories. Uh, one would be the true believers who still believe in everything that they did uh, was, was right. Uh, probably another third uh, has swung entirely the other way, who just think that their younger selves were crazy. And then I think the largest group, say let's say 40%, but fell in between, and that is they took, they, and I, I heard this a lot, they, they took the viewpoint that, yes, we should not have uh, resorted to violence. That, that was politically and morally not the thing to do. But it's very important for people today to understand the enormity of the causes that we were fighting for and against. And It's hard to argue with this part of, of that argument, that, that the, the, the Nixon administration was just about as criminal as they were saying. Uh, the Vietnam War was just about as morally questionable as they were saying. And yes, African Americans had been oppressed for hundreds of years. So the $64,000 question, though, the moral question that they each face and then a reader faces when reading Days of Rage is, at what point do you give up on the system and tell yourself you have to go outside the system to commit violence to change it? Now, the, and, and, and the, 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 um, the question and answer they always set up for potential re- recruits was this. They sincerely believed that the Nixon administration was approaching uh, the level of evil not seen since the Nazis in the 1930s. So the question they would always ask people is, if you were in Berlin in 1938 and you had a chance to blow up a bomb that would kill Hitler, would you? And that's those that went underground, that's what they believed they would do it.
0: Brian Burrow, his book is Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. It's just out in paperback from Penguin. Brian, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Real pleasure, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Thank you.